0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more. Champion para-athlete Amy Tobin has been told to vacate her NDIS-funded home because she wants to live by herself. Changes to the rules of funding around disability accommodation will force people like Amy to share their homes or risk becoming homeless.
2: I know how terrible it feels in... this situation personally but I also know that there's a lot of people out there with disabilities that can't advocate for themselves. NDIS is supposed to be the ones advocating for us and once again they've let the people with disabilities down.
1: On Australia Wide, how bureaucracy is pushing people living with disability out of their living arrangements. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk country, Perth. People with disabilities are being forced to share their homes or risk becoming homeless after a change to disability accommodation rules. Champion para-athlete Amy Tobin has been told to vacate her NDIS-funded home because she does not want to co-tenant. With no accessible properties available for her in her hometown of the Gold Coast and nowhere else for her to stay, she's at the mercy of an overwhelmed disability accommodation system during a national housing crisis. And sadly, she's not alone. Mackenzie Collihan has this story.
0: Amy Tobin lives alone in specialist disability accommodation on the Gold Coast, but within weeks, the 29-year-old could be homeless after a backflip on her housing arrangement.
2: If I don't have anywhere to go, I'll probably be living in my car and putting my stuff in storage, which I really can't afford to do because I am on a pension
0: Amy has cerebral palsy, she uses a wheelchair and requires around-the-clock care for everyday tasks like preparing meals, showering, dressing and driving. Her home is purpose-built for someone with high physical support needs, including automatic doors, wide hallways, accessible bathrooms, low benches and space for her spare wheelchairs. One bedroom has been converted to a gym with the expensive physical therapy equipment she needs to maintain her mobility and motor skills. When Amy moved in 18 months ago she was promised the home to herself but in August she was blindsided with an ultimatum share the property or move out by November 21st.
2: We're basically just told we have to share and that's the end of that. It's tough for me to feel safe around other people now and I don't think people should be forced to share if they were sold a provision that They could live independently and independence for me comes with me living on my
0: own with my dog. NDISP, the provider Amy rents the home through, says 17 of its Queensland tenants are in the same boat after the National Disability Insurance Agency changed the disability accommodation rules. According to the provider, it had previously been able to claim the tenant's entire NDIS housing budget, allowing people to live alone in a house instead of an apartment. But in July, the NDIA began enforcing a per-participant cap on the amount they were able to claim for a house. Amy's annual housing budget is $90,000, but the three-bedroom home she lives in now has a maximum per-participant price of $42,000 a year. The change means sole occupancy is no longer financially viable for the private investors who own specialist disability accommodation properties. NDISP director Darrell Richards lobbied against the change, which he says is unjust and defies
3: logic. If they still allowed that, Amy would be staying where, where she was. If Amy lives in an apartment, she gets one level of funding. If she's in a, in a house, she's getting maybe 40% of that level of funding. It makes no sense to me.
0: While the NDIA acknowledges the difficult time Amy is having with her accommodation, it says the new pricing arrangement is designed to protect participants from being overcharged. Specialist disability accommodation is in short supply. There is nothing suitable for Amy on the Gold Coast, and the closest available option is at Nunda, about 60 kilometres north, in Brisbane. She says had she known the home could be changed to dual occupancy, she would never have relinquished the Queensland Government social housing unit she had to herself at Burley Heads.
2: It comes down to bureaucracy, where people with disabilities will live, and how... Their life is determined. There's plenty of people out there that were sold a dream of living in an accessible home that are probably also facing homelessness.
0: Fiona Lawton, Amy's independent support coordinator, has been helping her search for a new home for the last two months. It took the NDIS four months to approve Amy's updated funding plan, leaving them unable to apply for properties, meaning they missed out on ones that were available on the Gold Coast. Ms Lawton says NDIS decision-making delays are exacerbating the situation she says already amounts to a humanitarian crisis.
4: People with a disability are reliant on that government system. The stress and the trauma that people with a disability are experiencing waiting for those decisions is just terrifying for them. The option of no, you're not funded or no, you're not supported the way you need to be or no, there's no accommodation available is an untenable, unthinkable situation for someone with a disability.
0: The Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with a Disability recommended fast-tracking a shift away from group housing toward independent living. According to the NDIS, 23,000 people are approved for the Specialist Disability Accommodation Scheme nationwide. There are less than 8,000 properties registered, 1,300 NDIS participants are waiting for a vacancy and another 4,500 are trying to move to a new home. Nicole Lee, the president of People With Disability Australia, says the federal government needs to include accessible accommodation targets in its housing strategy to give people control over where they live and who they live with.
2: It shouldn't be that
5: difficult. We shouldn't be more concerned about somebody's business model versus somebody's choice and control around where they live and the style of place in which they're living. The best way to describe this for everybody else out there is to, you know, when you first move out of home and you move into a share house, you get to choose who you live with. You get those choices around who shares the house with you. For disabled
2: people, for far too long, we don't have those choices.
0: Accessible housing targets are no use to Amy now. Her options are limited and her time is running out.
2: Every person with a disability deserves to live the life that they want to live. I know how terrible it feels in this situation personally, but I also know that there's a lot of people out there with disabilities that can't advocate for themselves. NDIS is supposed to be the ones advocating for us and once again they've let the people with disabilities down.
1: Champion para-athlete Amy Tobin speaking to our reporter Mackenzie Cullihan.
6: ABC Australia Wide.
1: For the first time, a military leader from Papua New Guinea will become second in command of one of Australia's combat brigades. It'll be the first time a foreign military officer has been appointed to such a senior role in the ADF and he'll be based in Townsville, the country's largest garrison city. Defence analysts say both nations are set to benefit from the historic appointment and signals a recommitment from Australia to its Pacific neighbours. Rachel Merritt has the story. (laughs)
7: chanting as they march through countryside with weighted packs. Troops from Australia's 3rd Brigade take part in physical training with their Papua New Guinea counterparts. Exercises like this, which was held in PNG earlier this year, occur annually between the two nations as part of a long and ongoing defence relationship. But in a bid to further shore up ties, a PNG military leader will become second in command of an Australian Combat Brigade. Lieutenant Colonel Boniface Aruma will become the first foreign military officer to be appointed to such a senior role in the history of the Australian Army. Next year, he'll assume the position of Deputy Commander of 3rd Brigade in Townsville, Australia's largest garrison city.
8: For us back home, it's a big deal. It's, it's, it's the most senior appointment that we have ever exported overseas. We've got instructors uh, and staff appointments all over the Australian Army uh, in, in, in Australia, as well as Navy and Air, but they're all at the major and uh, captain ranks and below. But this is really a giant leap for us uh, as an organisation.
7: Lieutenant Colonel Aruma has served in PNG's Defence Force for 27 years. He says the military capabilities of both nations are set to benefit from his involvement in high command at the brigade.
8: Like the positives are the effects that it generates at the strategic level, because obviously when I go back, I'll be operating out of the strategic level, and the thinking and the thought process, uh, uh, obviously, um, yeah, the exposure, the networking that I bring back to my organisation, the strengthening of the relationship, you know, this... This is uh, we've always had a, a very uh, long relationship, but this appointment, you know, is a testament to the enduring relationship between Australia and Papua New Guinea. We share the same, you know, values and uh, the same idea of, you know, what we want our region to be like, you know, safe, secure, and stable region. Uh, and I think for for the defence force at the strategic level, it adds a lot of value. It, 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 me going back. I'm able to bring that exposure here to bear on how we think and do things at a strategic level.
7: Outgoing Deputy Commander of 3rd Brigade, Lieutenant Colonel Ken Golder, says Chief of the Australian Defence Force, Angus Campbell, approached his PNG counterpart last year to discuss the possibility of a military embed.
0: Our relationship with the PNGDF from the 3rd Brigade perspective has been strong for a large number of years, and this just cements that. There's, there's broader things in the, in the Defence Strategic Review that gets after the Indo-Pacific. What we're talking about with Bonnie here is, how do we strengthen our partnership with the 3rd Brigade Australian Army and the Australian Defence Force with the PNGDF uh, on a more tangible relationship, person-to-person link, is what I think what we're after on this one. Uh, he will be intimately involved with support and mentoring uh, the commanding officers of this brigade, he's going to be influential in maintaining the, and strengthening the relationship not only with the PNGDF but the townsville community the townsville city council uh, the support and the community groups we have the defence affiliated groups and the defence welfare groups here in townsville
7: Head of the Northern Australian Strategic Pacific Policy Centre, John Coyne, says the appointment signals a cultural reset in the ADF's ongoing commitment to the Pacific.
9: Look, Australia has invested um, for multiple decades in having uh, Pacific Islanders attend the Royal Military College, Duntroon, to to attend the Australian Defence Force Academy um, to develop their offices at a junior level. Uh, I think this sends a really powerful message and that message is on multiple levels. The first one is the maturity of our relationship uh, with the region. And that is that is that we're willing to be part of um, or have them be part of our Australian Defence Force. The second one is is about, um, you know, in a lot of authoritarian states today, we see police and military all focused on protecting the government. One of the things that we share in common with the Pacific Islands nations is that... Um, Our armed forces, our defence forces, our police are all about our nation and serving our people. And so the idea of bringing together a Papua New Guinean senior officer to be a deputy commander of one of our most important formations in the Australian Army and a key capability to the Australian Defence Force and the nation sends a powerful message about the shared values and role of armed forces. Unfortunately, fighting two decades of wars against terrorism has meant that we've had a very big focus um, within the Middle East and in countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, um, and that has often come at the cost of our near neighbour relationships. I think this is a really good reset and shows a commitment by the Australian Defence Force, the Defence Organisation, the Australian government to enhancing those relationships and getting them back to where they were.
7: The appointment comes as Australia and PNG continue to hash out the details of a proposed bilateral security agreement, which was meant to be signed in June this year, but has hit several road bumps.
1: Rachel Merritt reporting there from Townsville. A few years ago, it seemed the plant-based meat industry was booming. New products were constantly appearing on supermarket shelves and in the U.S., Beyond Meat had debuted on the stock exchange and at one stage had a share price of over two hundred and thirty US dollars Its share price is now just five dollars and overall the industry is struggling. Sales are down and some companies are merging and some companies have even disappeared. Matt Brown spoke to food futurist Tony Hunter for his views on what's going wrong and he said a lot of companies were struggling with taste.
3: Well, I think the main thing we're looking at there, Matt, is that, you know, Fundamentally, a lot of the products, many of them actually don't taste good. And as any large food company knows, if your products don't taste good, the long-term future of your product is in doubt.
6: It's as simple as that?
3: I think it's as simple as that. I think that there's been a lot of um, hype around. My view is that for a product to be successful, I like to use the acronym TECH, T-E-C-H. First of all, it has to be tasty, then it has to be easy to use, and easy to find, then it has to be cheap, and then it has to be healthy for the people and for the planet. If you get all of those, you've got a successful product, and each one is a hurdle. If you don't get over the tasty hurdle, you're not going to have a long-term future.
5: Tony, we've got some consumer data here from the US, and it's clear that sales are down. Is it a similar story right around the globe though?
3: I think if we try and judge the entire plant-based sector and indeed the alternative protein sector on the basis of one company which everybody concentrates on, which is Beyond Meat, then we're missing the whole picture. Yes, there are problems in the US, there are problems even in the UK, but Germany is going gangbusters and so are other countries in Europe. So it's not a one-size-fits-all of what's happening in plant-based products. And we're seeing a lot of the supermarkets in Europe, like the Little Chain, they're driving plant-based product prices down and quality up. So does the plant-based meat industry have a future, Tony? Absolutely, and I think the key reason, Matt, these products have a future is that what we have is an undoubted fact. We're going to have 10 billion people on the planet by 2050 and a growing middle class. And we have this amount of protein that can be sustainably produced within planetary boundaries by animal agriculture, and we have the amount of protein we need. And animal agriculture simply can't scale to meet that entire demand without deforesting the planet, which I would suggest is not going to end well. So we need other protein products to fill that gap. And I think that's what it's about, the gap. The hype about destroying animal agriculture is not realistic. That's not going to happen. And I think that's, and to me, is really the nub of the entire issue with plant-based products food futurist
1: Tony Hunter. Australia relies heavily on trucks to keep our economy going, but some of the industry fear they're being forgotten in the country's transition to net zero transportation is the second largest contributor to australia's carbon emissions after energy production in an attempt to address this issue a small company on the new south wales central coast is converting old diesel trucks into electric vehicles our reporter kira pressed went along to see how it worked and to find out whether they feel part of the national conversation as we transition towards net zero <laughs>
5: I'm in a factory which is filled with old diesel trucks on the New South Wales central coast. The company here was founded in 2019 and has come a long way in that time. They take these old diesel trucks and convert them into electric vehicles with swappable batteries. Here's CEO Lex Forsyth.
10: We've got guys here running our battery section that were electricians, never built batteries before. Now we're building batteries and you know we've developed that technology over a period of time. And what we've created here is a very unique product offering that allows us to electrify pretty much 80% of the Class 8 trucks in the world with our existing technology suite.
5: Transportation is the second largest contributor to Australia's greenhouse gas emissions, with heavy vehicles making up around 20% of that. It's one of the reasons why Lex Forsyth is so passionate about what he does.
10: A lot of freight is carried on trucks Australia-wide. You know, there's a saying around, without trucks, Australia stops. And it's true. So every one of these trucks that we take off the road is the equivalent of 30 cars' worth of emissions in a year. So it's it's a significant impact that we can have on Australia's carbon footprint. The industry
5: says another upside to electrifying trucks is that they're heaps quieter. Worker Kai Montgomery says it was mind-blowing the first time he drove one.
0: It's pretty scary when you think that something that's the size of a prime mover like this can sneak up on you and it's silent and acceleration like a standard sedan is really cool
5: (laughs) but Lex Forsyth says there are challenges to electrifying the nation's heavy transport industry because the federal government hasn't put adequate legislative changes in place
10: I think we're all aware of the federal's electric vehicle strategy I think they just forgot about road transport and forgot about the transport sector so they had a great thing for cars but not for trucking and one of the, the challenges that we've seen is that having a national approach to axle mass with the vehicles and a framework to to give the transport operators a confidence to say, you know what, if I invest in this technology, I've got a clear pathway to not being at a disadvantage to what a diesel vehicle is. The reality of it is, in comparison to a diesel vehicle, the zero emissions vehicles, both hydrogen and battery electric, are about two and a half tons heavier in tear weight. So if you think about what that means, if, if the freight operator is losing two and a half tonnes of payload off the vehicle and it's not compensated for we're increasing our freight task, which is already at a stretch now. So there's, it, it, it's a key piece of legislation that needs to have a national approach because it's great that we've got the states like New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia that are putting initiatives in place, but they've got to have consistency because One rule in New South Wales might not apply in Victoria, might not apply in South Australia, and trucks transit cross borders. It's okay for fleets that are operating within the states and the capital cities, but we need a national framework for these policies. And this is where I looked at the federal government and thought this is really lacking in that they they haven't seen this, they haven't looked at it and said, you know, what, we need to put something in place.
5: Experts in this space agree. Here's Research Fellow at RMIT Ali Amani.
9: We need to have, let's say, a nationwide regulations that consider the transition to electric vehicles. Electric trucks uh, are heavier than uh, diesel trucks because of the battery. And also the width of them is a bit different. So we need, we need to first update the regulations all around Australia in order to make sure that we can accommodate this new technology on the road. And these updates should be well aligned with the available international practices as well.
5: In a statement, a spokesperson for the Department of Infrastructure, Transport and Regional Development says the federal government is developing a net zero 2050 plan, which would include a pathway to roll out zero carbon heavy vehicles. They're changes that businesses like this one on the New South Wales central coast hope are implemented quickly.
1: It's such a distinctive sound, the sound of a truck backing up. That's Kira Prowse that was reporting. They say that necessity is the mother of invention, and that's certainly true for an orphaned kangaroo joey in Mackay in North Queensland. And when a wildlife carer saw the young roo struggle to adjust to life with a shorter tail, she got her thinking cap on and recruited the help of a prosthetist, Together, they came up with the idea of a prosthetic tail for the amputee root.
4: When prosthetist Adrian Brown's office took a call from a wildlife carer, he wasn't expecting a request to create a prosthetic tail. We had
6: a bit of a chuckle over it, and uh, I said, oh, well, why not, why not, let's give it a go. I mean, can't promise anything, you know. Never made a kangaroo's tail before, I've got to say.
4: The young Roo, affectionately known as Cottontail, lost part of her tail in an accident with a car in the Mackay region in Queensland in May, and a further section had to be amputated by a vet. And while the young Eastern Grey survived, she was a bit wobbly on her feet and tail. And that was something that wildlife carer Debbie Gourley couldn't bear to see.
11: I don't know, I just sometimes I get a bee in my bonnet and I think about things, and, and um, I just made a couple of phone calls. I thought, well, it can't hurt to ask. My mum was an amputee, so I think that sort of inspired me a little bit. And maybe she was sort of there, sort of inspiring me to do something, you know. Once Adrian accepted the challenge, he set
4: about trying to learn as much as he could about kangaroo tails and how best to replicate them.
6: I looked up Dr Google for a kangaroo's tail because, yeah. I don't know what kangaroo's tail's made up uh, up of, you know. That research was suggesting that it's full of vertebrae and, you know, the, um, the tail's quite an important bit of gear when you're a kangaroo. I took the plaster cast of a tail and then filled that with plaster, put a, put a rod in it so I could put it in the vice and, and work on it.
4: Once the mount was made, Adrian set about crafting the flexible paddle.
6: And then i thought well okay how are we going to make a tail and um i had a brainwave that doesn't doesn't happen that often to be honest but it did um and i thought uh, a shoehorn would be really good <laughs>
4: so
6: you modeled it off a shoehorn. i modeled it off a shoehorn
4: yes adrian admits there was some trepidation when cottontail came in for her fitting
6: the thing was cottontail didn't seem to re- reject it I was having visions of when I was putting it on that she she was going to kick out and take me eye out or something like that, you know what I mean? But uh, she was cool. She didn't seem to worry about it at all.
11: There was relief also for Cottontail's carer, Debbie Gawley. I just want to give my kangaroos all the opportunities they can to to be released and go back to where they come from. I get sad, but I'm happy. It's an awesome feeling to see them go and be free, you know, and and be with her own kind.
4: The plan is for the prosthetic to help Cottontail build up strength in her own tail to the point where she doesn't need the attachment and can be released back into the wild.
11: Well, hopefully she'll be running around Dipperary National National Park with the mob, mob of kangaroos.
1: You'll have to look out for our wildlife care Debbie Gawley, ending that story from Melissa Madison in Mackay. And that is Australia Wide for this Monday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news,
4: music and more.